Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of Unbecoming. Today we're finishing a short series, two episodes on deconstruction. But before we pick up where we left off in the previous episode, I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that the Gautamer course will be starting in October. So many people look back on college as the best four years of their life. A lot of this is certainly due to the new sense of freedom, the lasting friendships, and for some, a bit of revelry on the weekends. One thing about the college experience that many don't realize until they've graduated is that it's a time when you're able to take four years of your life and just focus on learning. Whether you're taking Intro to Accounting or Taylor Swiftery, History and Literature through Taylor Swift, and yes, in case you're wondering, that is a real class that was offered at UT Austin in 2022. In any case, it's a rare gift to be able to dedicate yourself so completely to topics that you're really interested in. It's in this spirit that I'd like to invite you back into the classroom to study Hans Gerhard Gadamer, a man that I knew both as a teacher and friend, and a philosopher that I'm certain will change the way you see the world. If you think that's too much, try it. You'll see. If scheduling is a concern for you, please know that we will be setting up a poll for all those who are interested so we can set up dates and times that work for everyone. If the cost, 200 for those who don't subscribe on Patreon, 160 for anyone who does subscribe on Patreon beginning by October 1st, please know that we are more than happy to work with you to make sure that resources don't present a barrier. For those of you that are interested, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any questions. We can be reached by email at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com or you can send us a DM on twit, Twitter, well, now X at onbecomingpod. If you find the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Now let's get back to deconstruction. If you haven't heard the first episode on deconstruction, you'll probably find that starting with that episode will be helpful. So far, I haven't said anything about Derrida, and I think a few remarks are in order. One is that he grew up in Algiers, and to some extent, and this is hard to quantify or even get clear on, he wasn't fully accepted by French academia which means that his greatest reception was actually in the U.S., particularly in literature departments. Derrida cut quite a figure. He was extremely handsome and had long, flowing hair, and he was just very, very impressive. The first time I heard him speak was in Chicago. As I later discovered, his talks usually lasted about three hours. Yes, I'm not making that up. No break. Just hardcore philosophizing for three hours straight. I managed to get through about... Mm, a little more than half of that. I think I stayed up to around two hours, and then I decided, okay, that's enough. Partly because at that point, I didn't know how long it was going to go. It turns out that I left it at precisely the time someone else was leaving, someone who worked in phenomenology of music. Let's just say that the number of people who work in this area is maybe about two hands full. So meeting him at the time I was just beginning my doctoral dissertation on phenomenology of music was utterly remarkable and so invaluable for how that work turned out. Then I heard Derrida speak when I was in Italy at a conference, and then at the university where I did my doctorate because they awarded him an honorary doctorate. 
As I've mentioned in the previous episode, it was only much later that I had the chance to take two seminars with him. By that point, I had taught various texts by him for many years. Given the complexity of those texts, some of them are really, really difficult. I was astounded when I discovered that his own teaching was clear and free from jargon. It was so at odds with the sheer complexity and subtlety of his texts. I mentioned that Derrida was mainly read by people in the literature department, which meant that those hearing him had the sense that they were hearing something radically new. Those of us in philosophy realized that his ideas came from Husserl and Heidegger, so we weren't all that surprised. But unfortunately, using deconstruction as a method, yes, and I'm doing air quotes even as I say that, precisely what Derrida says, it's not, ended up allowing people in literature departments to do rather crazy things in the name of deconstruction. Quite simply, the best example of this that I witnessed firsthand was the following. The University of Chicago had in place a program titled Midwest Faculty Program. In practice, this was all about inviting those of us who taught at small Midwestern colleges to experience the glory of the University of Chicago, which is truly a fine institution, but I think it's a bit too much in love with itself. We were largely treated to a number of talks by university faculty. One of those talks was given by a person who had done her doctorate at Stanford and now taught at Chicago. It was a deconstructive reading of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, in which the presenter maintained that a close reading of the text shows us that the American Revolution was actually based on food. Have you ever been at some kind of event and you just wished the floor would somehow open up and you could just slide away? That's definitely how I felt. Then later, when hanging out with a philosophy professor at Powell's used bookstore, that's on 57th Street, and if you're ever there uh, by the University of Chicago and get to go to Powell's on 57th, you should do it. It has the best collection of used philosophy books I've ever encountered. Anyway, we started talking about the talk. We were both shocked that anyone could give such a crazy presentation. I provide this example because it's funny, as in crazy funny. But it also gives you an idea of some of the bizarre things people were doing in the name of deconstruction. As a result of the way in which deconstruction had been received in literature departments, many people thought that Derrida was a relativist or skeptic. That became kind of the default opinion in the academic world. Yet that view is actually simply false, which became increasingly clear the more Derrida wrote. In a very early text from the early 60s, Derrida had written a highly complex piece on the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. While Derrida had some critical comments, it's clear in that text that Derrida deeply shares Levinas's concerns about respect for the other. In his later work, that is Derrida's later work, that concern comes to take center stage. But Derrida also made it clear that those using his work to support relativism or anything like that didn't have his approval. In the afterword to the volume Limited Inc., Derrida goes to great lengths to criticize both his overly enthusiastic followers and his detractors. Working from the conception of language posed by Saussure, who believed that the meaning of words arises in the context of their similarities and differences, Derrida talks about the play of signifiers. As you might imagine, some people took this to be something like free play, in which meaning could end up being just about anything. As a speaker at the chapel at the institution where I once taught, said, deconstruction is the theory that says you can make texts mean anything you want them to mean. If that were true, 
then there would be no point in Derrida writing a text, since any text he wrote could be made to mean whatever the reader wanted it to mean. But of course Derrida never said or even implied such a thing. In fact, Derrida replies by saying, I never spoke of complete free play or undecidability. I'm certain that the, and now I, I'm, I'm quoting again, that the American critics of my work can find nothing in my text which corresponds to that. And then he goes on to give an even more pointed response. Since the deconstructionist, which is to say, isn't it, the skeptic, relativist, nihilist, exclamation point, is supposed not to believe in truth, stability, or the unity of meaning, in intention or meaning to say, how can he demand of us that we read him with pertinence, precision, rigor? How can he demand that his own text be interpreted correctly? The answer is simple enough. This definition of the deconstructionist is false. That's right, false, not true, and feeble. It supposes a bad, that's right, bad, not good, and feeble reading of numerous texts, first of all mine, which therefore must be read or reread. Then perhaps it will be understood that the value of truth and all those values associated with it is never contested or destroyed in my writings, but only reinscribed in more powerful, larger, more stratified contexts. As we've discovered, deconstruction takes place whenever we question a theory or text, reformulate its meaning, or consider what's left unsaid in a text versus what is said. My go-to example for deconstruction is Bible commentaries. If you go into a theological library and look for commentaries on the four Gospels, you'll discover that there are a lot of different opinions in these texts. By their very nature, commentaries attempt to break down passages into their component parts, show how those parts relate to one another, and often provide a different way of reading a given text. Anytime you reformulate anything, you are engaging in deconstruction. The unbuilding that takes place in Bible commentaries is usually not designed to undermine the Bible, though it's often designed to undermine certain readings or interpretations of the Bible. Usually the justification given for undermining those interpretations is that they're incorrect, and the goal then is to get to a more correct reading. But then something really important happened in terms of Derrida's development. Derrida was invited to give a talk at a law school in New York City on deconstruction and justice. People who attended that talk, unless I was not there, must have had something like a shock. For Derrida made the remarkable claim that justice cannot be deconstructed. Instead, we use the notion of justice to deconstruct instances of injustice. Thus, Derrida declared justice to be an absolute, an ideal that is constantly at work. Justice is not deconstructible because it is beyond the realm of deconstruction. Rather, justice is what makes deconstruction possible. Human beings are such existentially that they always do presuppose that there is something like justice, and pragmatically, they also cannot function without it. Whereas a given law can be justified by way of justice, justice cannot be justified by anything further. Law, by its very nature, is always an interpretation of justice. Precisely in the name of justice, the law can, and must be, deconstructed, or else it turns into an ideology. But why so? While laws are always attempts that are instantiating justice, they always fail, no matter how close they come at doing justice to justice, 
because of the lack of adequation between law and justice. Thus, we must continually ask questions such as, what is the aim of given law? Does it achieve this aim? Has it come into existence because of motives that are ulterior to the stated aim? Derrida explains this difference between law and justice by way of the notion of translation. On the one hand, translation allows something to be in a place it could not be previously, such as an English-speaking context if the text is originally in French. So one does justice to a great text by making it available in as many languages as possible. On the other hand, precisely in making something available, translation does a kind of violence to what it translates, for however careful and however well-intentioned the translator and the translation is, it never completely or perfectly renders the meaning of what is translated. This problem of translatability is likewise found in instantiating justice. On Derrida's account, justice is a kind of universal, which must be translated into particularities of laws and cases. If we apply this notion of translation to law, it becomes clear that law is always an interpretation of justice, not justice itself. But Derrida thinks that even in making laws and rules, that is, applying justice to specific sorts of actions, one always does a kind of violence to justice. Derrida shows us the aporias of justice, and here I need to explain that term. The idea of aporia goes back to Socrates, who actually identifies himself as being operatic. Literally, aporia, that's A-P-O-R-I-A, is aporos, the Greek aporos, the loss of one's way or a lack of transport. So poros is the way and the a is the alpha privative, indicating that one has lost one's way. Metaphorically, Aporia is a state of confusion or perplexity. Socrates often finds himself in this state. At one point, for instance, he admits he simply does not know. He says, and I'm quoting, The fact is that I'm inquiring with you into the truth of that which is advanced from time to time, just because I do not know. And when I've inquired, I will say whether I agree with you or not. Similarly, Socrates responds to the charge made by someone that he's like a stingray which confuses its prey by saying the following. It isn't that knowing the answers myself I perplex other people. The truth is rather that I infect them with the perplexity I feel myself. So with virtue now. I don't know what it is. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you most likely have heard this point about Socratic ignorance. It's only when we admit that we don't know that we can learn something. As Socrates puts it, of myself, I have no sort of wisdom. In terms of justice, we find that some things in life are somewhat just, while other things seem completely unjust. In the latter case, we attempt to make things more just. In fact, this is what society is always striving for, though what counts as just and unjust changes over time. For instance, it was only recently that people started to think that forbidding people from marrying someone of the same gender was unjust. When I read reports of what's happening in the U.S. at the moment, queer people like me wonder if that consensus will survive or whether things will go back to the way they were before. One of the almost absolute constants in telling my story, in which my sexual orientation proves problematic, is that almost everyone responds by saying, I thought that didn't happen anymore. 
And then I have to point out that while there's a lot of righteous talk about diversity and employers are now often forced to undergo training to teach them to respect everyone, discrimination, whether racial, sexist, homophobic, or whatever, continues just as much as it had been there before. By the way, as much as I appreciate the spirit in which those so-called DEI initiatives were put into place, I have significant doubts whether the results are all that important. You can't change discriminatory behavior with a few seminars or bringing in a consultant. In fact, I often say something like the following, oh, for the good old days when people who are homophobic were happy to say that out loud. Now they're homophobic, but they just make sure they don't say it, or even more important, put it in writing. I find the, oh, we're so inclusive here, usually fails to reflect the actual situation. In most cases, it's an aspiration, not a reality. I've mentioned this particular problem, homophobia, precisely to illustrate that getting to actual justice is hard. The reality is that justice is experienced and not experienced, that every instance of justice proves to be both an instance of justice and a falsification of justice, that every experience of justice shows the impossibility of doing justice here on earth. Now I'm quoting Derrida. There is no justice without this experience, however impossible it may be, of aporia. Justice is an experience of the impossible, a will, a desire, a demand for justice, the structure of which would not have an experience of aporia, would have no chance to be what it is, namely, a just call for justice. Whereas law is that which is calculable, justice is what escapes all calculation. Whereas law is ensured by rule, justice is what surpasses all rules. The reason the deconstruction is justice is that it exposes all rules and laws as less than full justice. And the reason why laws are less than full justice is that they are, as surprising as this may sound, always at once both too specific and too general. Derrida does not put his critique in exactly those terms, but I think they help capture the problem. So, let me put this in a few different ways. First, laws are too specific because they specify justice of a particular sort in a limited way, even though justice always has a much fuller meaning. A law concerning fire hydrant violations may tell us something about justice, but it doesn't tell us very much. Justice is a much richer concept than any law, or even a very well-crafted set of laws, could do justice to. So simply to make laws and rules to apply justice to specific sorts of actions is to do justice to justice. But it is likewise to do justice and injustice. To use phenomenological language, it makes justice present, but it also keeps it absent. One honors justice by making rules, but one also and always distorts justice by making rules. So can an action or rule ever be just? It would seem that we must conclude that justice always, by nature, eludes the attempt to instantiate it. But of course, that difficulty is to be found in other respects. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and everyone fails at that. But the ideal is still valuable. Second, laws, however helpful and just, are too general. They are never specific enough, we might say adequate enough, for any particular situation. A law is about general categories, not a specific instance. 
My parking violation might be classified under the law concerning parking in front of a fire hydrant. But that law really isn't about me, nor did its writer have any particular violation in mind. It just covers the general category of parking in front of a fire hydrant, but it doesn't cover my parking in front of a fire hydrant. And that problem is not merely an expression of personal hubris along the lines of, since I'm so important, there should be a special law just for me. That would be silly. Perhaps there are extenuating circumstances, though, that lessen the severity of the crime. What if I actually park only two inches too close, two inches over the yellow part of the curb, as opposed to that really bad person who parks directly in front of the hydrant? Aren't I less guilty? As it turns out, those who administer justice in courts of law do take circumstances into account in determining both guilt and justice. To be clear, I've never parked in front of a fire hydrant. But I became interested in the phenomenon when I lived in New York City, where getting your car towed is unfortunately a common occurrence. One day I saw the driver of a tow truck hitching up someone's car to take it away. So I decided to ask him how he approached enforcing such rules. He replied, The law says that you have to be at least 15 feet away from the fire hydrant, but I'll leave a car that's only 9 feet away. 7 feet, though, that's just too close. But the application of rules or laws to particular instances is still problematic. Since each case is unique, no case could be just another instance of, say, rule number 427. This is why Derrida speaks of the need to continually reinvent laws. To be just, he says, the decision of a judge, for example, must not only follow a rule of law or a general law, but must also assume it, approve it, confirm its value, by a reinstituting act of interpretation, as if at the limit the law did not exist previously, as if the judge himself invented the law in each case. In short, for a decision to be just and responsible, it must, in its proper moment, if there is one, both be regulated and without regulation. It must preserve the law and also destroy or suspend it enough to reinvent it in each case. But if each case must be decided and the law newly reinvented, then one can see why Derrida thinks that all decisions end up being, at least in some sense, undecidable. Let me explain what Derrida means by undecidability. In saying that all decisions are undecidable, Derrida points to the ultimate impossibility of their calculation. We should still calculate, says Derrida, but we should also be clear as to the actual status of that calculation. If, for example, I decide to do X rather than Y, I can provide a reason for doing so, but not in the sense of providing a mathematical calculation to explain my action. Indeed, I can only say that in my judgment, one of those choices seemed to be the right one to make. That's not to say I just felt like doing X, or I can give no reason at all. But there's only so far one can go. Eventually, one runs out of reasons for one's reasons. On Derrida's view, it's precisely this undecidability, the fact that decisions can only be calculated to a point, that gives my decision the character of being a decision made by a rational agent as opposed to a quasi-decision made by machine program, by logic or rules. Were I able to formulate a calculus for my action, I would then no longer be making a decision. Machines operate by way of calculus but people make decisions. 
In his later text, Derrida explicitly argues that his notion of undecidability is and always has been about avoiding violence. There's a further, though, and more disturbing aspect of making moral choices. At least some moral decisions, and perhaps ultimately all, are indecidable because the demands of justice are far more than one can possibly meet. For instance, we all have responsibilities to a whole host of people, family, friends, neighbors, and Jesus, of course, considerably complicates this last category by implying that everyone is my neighbor. But how could I possibly satisfy all those demands in a perfectly just way? In this case, it is not that I have no sense of morality at all. If anything, it's that I have too much of one. Part of becoming morally attuned is that one becomes aware of more and more injustice and depths of personal responsibility. It's a very poignant example of ignorance being bliss. The more self-centered I am, the less I'm able to see my moral responsibilities to others. But despite all these complications, Derrida points out that you cannot postpone acting. It's an old existentialist truism that not to decide is to decide. Aristotle thought that the right action required a thorough no knowledge of the circumstances. For him, the morally well-developed person, the phronomos, has the necessary practical wisdom, phronesis, to make the right decision, the one which achieves the golden mean. Yet even Aristotle admitted that one is never quite a phronomos, a perfect phronomos, though Aristotle seems to think that he's pretty close. <laughs> and even if we grant the possibility of anyone having a perfectly developed phronesis, it's hard to imagine a situation in which all possible aspects of a given situation are known. Indeed, how could you ever be sure there wasn't at least one additional salient fact? But even though one will never have enough knowledge and enough understanding of the context, person, etc., in order to act perfectly right, one must still make decisions. One is required to act, but one never has enough information to make a completely and fully calculated, that is, completely just decision. Frankly, one sometimes has precious little information and so makes a bad decision, perhaps through no fault of one's own. In the logic of difference, we can say that just acts always differ from justice itself and that justice is always deferred. Derrida insists that we must calculate and here I'm quoting him, as rigorously as possible. But we have to, at the same time, realize that our calculations always fall short of the mark. Oddly enough, if one cannot calculate exactly how close one's action comes to perfect justice, so one can never be quite sure how short it falls of that mark either. Whatever justice or shalom we currently experience is mingled with and thus corrupted by injustice and war. While the Christian rightly insists that there really is justice, even if we are not exactly sure what it means to make that statement, the danger comes in insisting that one's particular conception of it is adequate to that justice. Even that great proponent of natural law, St. Thomas Aquinas, realize that human law only imperfectly mirrors natural law, and that natural law only imperfectly mirrors the internal law. Of course, Derrida does, does indeed recognize that his is a hypersensitive understanding of justice, one that can never ultimately be satisfied, 
But that thinks Derrida is the point. We can never rest. We can never be satisfied in either our acting or our moral thinking. For to do so would be to be self-satisfied, and that would unfortunately be idolatrous. If I am adequate to virtue, and virtue is defined by God, then I am adequate to God. Thus, I am God. Derrida has no solution to such a porous, but that lack of solution in no way implies that we ought to give up the quest of being moral. Quite the opposite. Derrida insists that we need to maintain a hypervigilance in which one's actions remain ever open to question. And there is, I think, much to commend Derrida's exhortations. We are always inclined to see our own parochial conceptions of justice as justice itself. And it's very hard to realize that our formulations of justice are always incomplete and imperfect. But you might ask, is deconstruction always justice? Even if we're willing to grant that deconstruction is at time justice, can we say that it is always justice? To deconstruct is to examine the underlying presuppositions and the consistency of a political, ethical, or theoretical position. Therefore, one can indeed further justice by deconstructing that which is unjust or unrighteous, or simply using deconstruction as a tool to explain and understand. Deconstruction can be a way of taking responsibility, in the sense that one attempts to carefully think through ideological implications and assumptions. But one can also use deconstruction not for justice, but for antinomianism, the escape from all law. Thus one must be careful about the claim that deconstruction is justice, because the veracity of that claim will depend largely upon who is deconstructing what and why. One is probably advised to be just a little suspicious of the claim that deconstruction is justice, and that suspicion is advised in the name of hypervigilance. That's all for today's episode. I've found Derrida really helpful for thinking about justice and for a whole host of other things. So I hope you've found today's podcast to be enlightening, not just about Derrida, but likewise about justice and being just. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.